I muted it, sorry. <laughs> Perhaps I'll just put it in my pocket and leave it alone. Okay. You know, it's funny, when we saw that thing up there saying, no signal, no signal, I said, yeah, but we've got lots of children of God and we've got the Holy Spirit. You know, if we haven't got signal, that's fine. Um, it's been, look, every week this year has been an amazing week, but, but certain things happened. Um, I got rung from a person on Friday from regional WA, and uh, they said to me, Stuart, uh, we've been following um, Calvary Chapel Perth now ever since COVID hit, but I live in regional WA and it's too far to get to Perth. Do you know of um, any churches in this area? And I'm not going to name it. Um, no names, no pack drill um, that might sort of teach along the lines that, uh, that you teach. And I said, well, I, I know a couple. So I sent the, the contact details to this person and I said, I, don't, I haven't heard them teach, uh, but um, I said, try them out anyway and, and just go and fellowship. And, um, and she said, that person said, I've been looking for ages and there's just some, simply nothing around. And to me, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. What is the matter with this book, with pastors and people in the, in the church these days? What's the matter with it? It's, it? It is the reason that we know everything about God. It is the reason that... that, that gives us knowledge and it gives us inspiration it gives us um, uh, energy when we've got nothing else and it just breaks my heart that um, that pastors for some reason just aren't teaching from this book because it contains everything that we need for life it contains everything we need for relationships it, ta it, it contains everything that we know that we should do to please God and we know by this book where we're going to spend eternity. So what's the problem with this book? And it bugs me. And you know what? Um, I got up this morning and I sort of swept aside the drapes uh, to go downstairs and, and make, make um, uh, breakfast for my wife and I. And I looked out over the city. I couldn't see the city. Um, I just saw torrential rain and I saw wind, the trees bowing in the wind and all the rest of it. And I turned to my wife and I said, I hope whoever's preaching today does a good job. <laughs> and as a pastor's wife, she said, dear, it's you. I thought, ah. Oh. <laughs> and then she told me something that really bugged me. No, no, she said, no, she loves my breakfast. I mean, <laughs> percolated coffee. Toast, in bed, you can't, you can't complain. But you know what she was telling me when I came back up? She said, I've just learnt that 85% um, of the churches in America are still closed. 85% of the churches in America are still closed. And we turned on um, YouTube yesterday because normally our, our Saturday thing is we might spend an hour maybe listening to Jan Markell. She was taken down. The moment she posted, she was taken down. Um, and, and the explanation on YouTube was that um, uh, the content of this message contravenes our social responsibility guidelines. And I thought, well, that means she must have been speaking the truth. Uh, and yeah, no, so I, it was, and I went on her website, and if you, if you ever encounter that, go to the website, and you can download it and listen to it on the website, and so it was, and it was um, a health professional speaking to Jan about the, um, the so-called spikes in the virus in certain uh, states in, in, the United, in the US, and this health professional was saying they've gone past testing and they've gone past everything else. If you even turn up somewhere with a bit of a sniffle or you might have sneezed once that your phone picked up and Siri reported on you. <laughs> I seriously, I get so annoyed. I'm Sue and I are talking and then Siri will say, yes, how can I help you? And I thought, <laughs> I didn't know you were listening. So anyway, um, what they're doing now in America is they're looking at probable cases. So they're not even doing um, blood tests, they're not even doing swabs, they're doing anything. They're saying is if you feel slightly off colour, 
you are called a probable case, which is why the numbers have exploded. You know what I mean? And it's just unbelievable. So that's why they took it down. Probably take this one down this afternoon too. But at the end of the day, it, it's tragic. And the other thing that Sue told me when I, uh, when I came back upstairs is that um, I can't even bear saying his name. I'll just say the governor of California is now threatening to arrest John MacArthur. He's threatening to arrest John MacArthur. And so if John goes, Jack will go, Tom Hughes will go, all the rest of them. So please don't think that everything's going back to normal. Nothing is going back to normal. And I tell you what, boy, do we need Jesus. Every day we need Jesus. And, you know, I was really upset by, A, the phone call on, on Friday that no one in regional W... I'm sure there must be someone somewhere, but they're just not preaching the Bible. And I was really upset about the fact that 85% of the churches in America are still closed. And you know what? So the pastors of some of those churches are sending quite nasty emails to people like Jack Hibbs and to people like John MacArthur saying, you're not obeying the government. Well, there are thir certain things that you do are in Romans 13, 1 and 2 that you do do. And we obeyed the government at the start of this year when the thing was um, publicised and, and lockdown came. We obeyed the government. We did everything that we could. But in the time from then till now, there's been so much information come through that this isn't what they say it is. Yes, it exists. Yes, it's real. But things are happening. And, and uh, uh, so I've gone to the Acts chapter 5 where Peter and John say to the Sanhedrin, um, regardless of what you say, we know that we're charged to preach Jesus. And preach Jesus we will. Okay, and that's what Calvary Chapel will be doing. And, you know, the sadness that I, that, that, that I felt about the churches in America and the Christians in America that aren't getting fed uh, except going online. And it led me to some um, passages this morning in um, Ezra, out of nowhere. And this is not part of today's message, but it's just an indication of, of, of the things that we look in. And in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we read this. Now in the first year of Cyrus the king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So this is fulfilling prophecy given by Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying. This is God working in the heart of a pagan Gentile to do the plan of God. And the, today's message is that in the plan of God, carrying on from last week, Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. And in verse 2 it says, And thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord, of, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Seriously? Can you imagine Cyrus getting that in the spirit? You know, he, he, it's not even his God. He's got the captives there in with him. And he is being told, told to, to uh, put into place the rebuilding of the temple. And it's amazing. And so he calls out to the people, Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. And this is what he said. Nebuchadnezzar said this. He is God which is in Jerusalem. And so Cyrus let them go. And go over to um, verse 2, verse 64 to 66. The whole assembly, this is all of the people who agreed to go back, and, and the, the, the intervening verses are all of the people of the various tribes who all gathered together to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And the whole assembly was 42,360. And have you ever stopped to think about that number and any of the numbers in the scripture? If they're not true, if they're not accurate, then Lucifer, Satan, has a legal right to challenge that and prove that. So when we read that and we know it stayed in here for two and a half thousand years, 
we know that exactly 42,360 gathered together from the children of Israel. Not 65, not 55, 60. And besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, notice the specificity of the number, not one more, not one less. And it's never been ch uh, challenged by, by the enemy of God. And their, don their camels and their, and their donkeys, whatever. So what happened is the children of Israel, 42,000, and their maids and their servants, they were uh, Gentiles, they came with them and they joined together. And I remember donkeys years ago, I did the maths, and it's just slightly under 50,000 people that returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city under Israel and rebuild the temple. And they sort of stumbled for a while and it had to take Nehemiah to come along and kickstart the whole process again. But you know what got me? Is that there was over one and a half million people, Jews, in Mesopotamia at this time. Because over a million were taken by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon uh, at the start of the 70-year um, um, uh, period of their uh, um, banishment from the land of Israel. And I'm thinking, there's one and a half million there, and only 50,000 go back. 42,000 exactly. That's less than 4%. And what does that mean? 85% of the churches in America are still closed. That means only a minority are getting fed by faithful pastors in obedience to the word of God. Only 50,000 went back. And you know that's the problem. Um, because life in between the two rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris, it was just paradise. And they were doing very well after, um, after the captivity finished. And they sort of looked around and said, no, this is wonderful. We're not going back to that place. It's broken down. We need to rebuild it. It's a lot of hard work. We're doing very nicely here. And do you know what? Even in the time of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Mesopotamia is ancient Iraq. And you know, the, um, when Saddam Hussein was ruling Iraq and he was supposed to be this terrible person, Jews and Christians lived, lived safely under his rule. Do you know that? And there's still a, a, there was, up until ISIS came in, still a remnant of these people still between the two rivers. It's absolutely amazing. It's just, it, it blows my mind. So before I continue with today's message, I just want us as a fellowship now, please, to pray, bow your heads and pray, and we're going to pray, pray for John MacArthur specifically because Newsom, I said it, Newsom has targeted this man. And so, Father, we come before you as your children, Father, and as part of the body of Jesus Christ worldwide. We're part of your church, Father. John MacArthur is part of our church. Jack Hibbs is part of our church. Barry Stagner, Amir Safadi, all of the people that we know that are still um, preaching your word, Father, in these dark days. We just ask you now that you would stand with John MacArthur. You would put your blessing upon him. You would put your protection around him, Father. And I would pray now, Father, that, that prayers would go out from around the body of Christ throughout this world to stand up not only for the pastors in, um, in America, but the Christians in India are under persecution, there's Christians in China are under persecution, they're, they're living um, with the natural disasters. Father, we just ask you in the name of Jesus, here at Calvary Chapel, Perth, Father, that you would make yourself known to them in a mighty way and that the unbelieving would see your hand upon these men. And I just pray this now in the matchless, immaculate name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going back to the, to the um, message and, I, and, and you know, I got told off by um, my editor-in-chief um, last week. You put a lot of information in there and, and, you know, and I started sort of tuning out because there's too much information. So I'm going to go back a little bit over it, but only a couple of verses. And so um, in Matthew 23, remember, Jesus absolutely 
ripped into the Sanhedrin and, and uh, embarrassed them, humiliated them, and deeply antagonized them. And this is only three days before the crucifixion. So you can imagine the, the, the anger and the emotion in these people to take revenge on Jesus because of this public humiliation. And in Matthew 23, verse 34, it says, Therefore, Jesus, I will send to you prophets, wise men, and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you, you, the religious leaders, may come all of the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Where there are two passages in the Scripture where there is a line of righteousness displayed in the, in, the, in the Bible. And this is one here, verse 35 in Matthew, in the whole of um, Hebrews chapter 11, is also about the hall of, um, of faith, the hall of the righteous. And it's fascinating, is it not, that it starts in both cases with Abel, not with Adam. And I'll let you chew on that one and you can come up and, and ask me later. And assuredly, I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. And we looked at it last week about the uh, destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And this is the one that I want to em emphasize today. Verse 39. For I shall say to you, I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a messianic greeting and every Jew knows that when the Messiah comes they are going to greet him with that greeting. And if you pop over, it's just quickly, I just want to emphasize this in Luke 19 verse 38 when Jesus is riding the donkey into Jerusalem and all of the crowds on the Mount of Olives and down into the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, the same greeting. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so they were saying that to Jesus as he rode into, the, into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. And so this is the greeting that they will give Jesus one day. But Jesus, this whole passage is, this Matthew 24, 25 passage is specifically to the Jewish people. And Jesus is saying, because they rejected him, Jesus is saying, I'm saying goodbye to you now and, you, and I, you will not see me again until you say this blessing, this greeting. And I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 5 verse 15 because we're going to go there in 6, 1 and 2 and it explains everything. And, and the rabbis just don't like this, this particular passage. They know it's messianic and they don't like the implications in this one. So in Hosea 5 verse 15, listen carefully and note the fact that my, my is capitalized. You cannot miss the fact that this is a messianic divine passage. And Jesus says in Hosea 5.15, I will return again to my place. If he's returning, he must have come from it. Do you see what I mean? Look at the logic. If he's returning, he had to come in the first place. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge, which is a shem, which is to be guilty of and to be punished for their offense, until they acknowledge their offense, which is their rejection of him. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. And in the Hebrew, it's sasa. And it looks like Zar, T-S-A-R, and it's, it's repeated twice. And that means anguish, distress, tribulation. So when are they going to earnestly seek him? In the second half of the 70th week of Daniel. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, this is, oh, this is amazing. This is what they say. In the second half, this is what the believing remnants say in the second half of the tribulation that Jesus is referring to. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, which is the word teraf, which means to pluck off or to tear to pieces. And boy, does the Antichrist tear them to pieces in that second part of the tribulation. 
He has torn, but he will heal, which is to mend or stitch together us. He, was, he has stricken us, but he will bind, which is dressed up our wounds. He will bind us up. And after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And this is one of the contentious um, um, passages where you can um, apply, but not doctrinally, it's not doctrine, but it just gives a hint when Peter says, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. If you apply that to this particular passage, after two days, after 2,000 years, he will revive us. Well, we are so close to 2,000 years that they have been out of the land and it's just brilliant. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And when I was preparing the message this week, I think there's a verse that came straight into my mind. And it's 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. And don't, don't leave that particular passage. That verse 2 in Hosea chapter 6 is fascinating. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again, when? On the third day, according to the Scriptures. When is he going to raise up Israel? On the third day. Jesus, three days in the grave, Raised up on the third day. Israel, 2,000 years in the diaspora, he's going to raise them up on the third day. Do you see the parallels? Do you see the nuggets that the Holy Spirit sticks into Scripture? It's absolutely amazing. And then after that, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him privately and asked him these questions. And I, I only mentioned it last week, but I've actually got Eric to put it up. It's Mark 13, verse 3. And it says here, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately. And I made the point last week, how many disciples did he still have? Judas hadn't left him by now, so how many has he got? Twelve? No, he's got twelve. He, has, he, he loses Judas at the upper, in the upper room discourse. And so he's got Peter, James, John and Andrew. So that's four. Now turn over to Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 and I'm, letting, uh, I'm putting uh, these all up on the screen so that you're aware of it if you haven't got your Bible in your, in your lap. And in Zechariah 13, 8 and, 9, uh, 8 and 9 it says, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds, this is the Jewish people, and I hate saying this but because we've spent 23 years with the Jewish, Perth Jewish community. I don't like this that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. And the four disciples that came to Jesus are illustrative of the believing Jewish people in the last days. One-third will be saved, because of, not because they deserve it, because they have faith in Jesus, because they are the ones that have been calling out in Hosea 6 and 1, let us return to the Lord. It's their faith that saved them, not their ethnicity. And so many people make um, um, judgments that, you know, at the end of the tribulation, all Israel will be saved. No, it won't. It's the faithful that will be saved. In Daniel 12, verse 2, it says that Michael, the, great, uh, the, the archangel, will stand up, who is the prince over these people, the Jewish people, and, and there will be two resurrections pertaining to the Jews. One resurrection to life, one resurrection to infamy. There is no way anyone gets into heaven apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There is no trick, there is no um, compensation for your life, for your suffering, your trials, your tribulations. You get up there because you have placed your faith, your trust and your belief in your Saviour that died on the cross and paid for your sins. That's the only way. And it's absolutely fascinating. 
And verse 9, I will bring one third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and tested them as gold is tested. You know, uh, I've said this before, but it was last year to the, the original congregation. I'll say it before. I was in the um, gold mining industry for all the way through the 90s. And some of you know this, some of you don't, that when you're refining gold or silver, you actually put it in intense heat in crucibles and you keep boiling it and boiling it and boiling it and the refiner actually skims the rough off the top and he knows when it's pure gold, when the refiner can look into the top of the boiling gold and see his reflection in it. That's what it means to be refined. And I'm telling you right now, we are being refined each and every day. And you know what? Jesus is seeing his image in us because it's Romans 8 all over again. We are being conformed into the image of his son. And you don't get it by birth. You get it by refining because none of us are good enough to start off with. And so, as, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name. That's the basis of faith. And I will answer them. And Jesus will say to the Jewish people in Petra and Bosra and all the ones around the world that listen to the teaching of the 144,000, Jesus will say, this is my people. And each one of them will say, the Lord is my God. It's, I just sat and looked at that passage. I've read it time and time again in relation to studies on the tribulation. But when I see it as, as Jesus bringing his Jewish people home into Israel for the thousand-year reign, I just stare at it. I think it's just absolutely magnificent. And so we went through the three questions last week. That's Matthew 24, 3. Tell us when will these things be. That's the destruction of the temple. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then he has other things that are quite fascinating. I mean, we looked at the Luke 21 passage last week, which was the destruction of, of uh, Jerusalem by Cestus Gellius, the Roman general in um, Israel at that time. And he came out in 66 AD, surrounded Jerusalem. There was trouble up north. He decamped from Jerusalem and the believing remnant took off. And they went to Pella up in the Decapolis. Um, there was about 20, 29,000 of them. But the tragedy here is 1.1 million Jewish people were slaughtered in the attack on Jerusalem. 1.1 million. And 97,000 were led, led away to be slaves. And you know, when my wife in 2014 took an elderly Jewish lady from here to her granddaughter's wedding in Hebron in the southern part of um, Israel. Um, she was staying with the family in Beersheba and um, they, just, they just united straight away. In fact, the hairdresser, the coffee guy, everyone just wanted her to stay, didn't want to come back to Australia. Um, I didn't know anything about that, but uh, but but you know what I mean. But the, but they ha but Sue. I say that because Sue had a relationship with them, where they could talk plainly, and they knew that Sue was a Christian. And they said they think you know. They said in this conversation in this house in Beersheba, uh, we know that you think that Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the daughters said to Sue, looked her in the eye, and said, "But where was Jesus in the Holocaust?" And that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks for this generation of Jewish people. If Jesus is the Messiah, where was he 75 years ago? And other, people, other Jewish people would say, well, if he was the Messiah, where's our peace? 1.1 million people died on Tishbiav. That's a holocaust. And the tribulation that these people have suffered for the last 1950 years doesn't bear speaking about. But he is their Messiah. 
and he is waiting for them to call him back. There is only one prerequisite for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and that's for his people to call him back. Well, what about the church? <laughs> Listen, we're up there. We're coming back with him. But Jesus also warns these four guys in Mark 13, verses 9 to 13. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, that's Acts 4 and Acts 5, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, as happened to Peter and John, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. Jesus never, ever pours out... Um, Sympathy or compassion on people for the trials in their life because the trials in our lives are our opportunity to give a testimony to Jesus that we're not letting it bury us. We're making us rise again in the strength of Jesus. And remember we finished last week with the Isaiah um, 40 passage that we will rise up on eagles' wings. That's a Jewish phrase for being carried on in the power of the Spirit. And he says, but watch out for yourselves. And in verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. And do you notice the difference in Peter before Pentecost and after? Do you notice the difference in Peter when he was very sorrowful on the shores of Galilee when Jesus was saying, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love you? And he said, yes, I love you, Lord. Yes, I love you, Lord. Yes, I love you, Lord. And then he's struck by the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 Jews from all over the empire are saved that day. And he gets another 5,000 saved. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is when he says, don't write speeches. The Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say because your trials, your tribulations are for you to give testimony to them about me. And this is what COVID-19 has done for Christians in Australia. It's given us an opportunity to share to people who would never have wanted to hear the word of God. And our trials and our tribulations have given us the opportunity to testify to, about Jesus and what he's done in our lives. And I tell you what, it's had an impact on people. People have come to the church who would never have come to the church. But you know, it's been a sifting mechanism. Because people who just used to turn up to church because it was a good thing to do, because of COVID have left and have never come back. It's a sifting mechanism. Do you see what I mean? In Luke 22, I think it's verse 23, when Jesus was walking into, through the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to Peter, 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 Satan has asked to sift you. That means to test you. But I have asked, prayed that when you return, you will strengthen the brethren. So because of his trial and his difficulty, you know, the reason why Satan asked Jesus, and isn't it amazing? We always ask 2 Thessalonians 2, who's the restrainer of evil? Well, who do you think? It's God, Jesus. Satan asked Jesus if he could sift him. Job 1 and 2, God tempted the devil by saying, do you not regard my servant Job? Is there none more righteous in the land? And Satan says to him, he's only like that because you protect him. And God said, all right, you can take everything that is his, but you can't touch him. And in verse, uh, chapter 2, he still is not, he's still not blaspheming my name. What are you going to do about it this time? And he says, let me have a go at him and I will get him to curse you. And Jesus says you can touch his body, but you can't take his life. 
would that the church would be that obedient to the voice of God. Do you know what I mean? And, and when we were doing uh, Revelation last year in our Wednesday Bible study, um, Revelation 9 always fascinates me. There's the locust army comes up out of the abyss and they torment men for five months with the vicious stings in their tails, but they're not allowed to kill them. And men will seek to die, but they won't be allowed to. So who do you think's in charge of everything? Your Father in heaven, and I always emphasize, I don't time and time again call him God, God, God. He's your Father in heaven. Your Father, individually, every one of you has a Father in heaven. You had a natural Father on this earth, but you've got an eternal Father in heaven. Don't you ever forget that. And he loves you as much now as he's going to love you in the new heavens and the new earth. You can't make him love you anymore. And you know, that's one of the problems we have in human families because often as we're growing up as children, mums and dads will say to you, well, if you'd be a good boy or a good girl, we'll give you this. Or we'll give, it's, it's conditional love. Do you see what I mean? If you're good, you'll get a reward. If you're bad, you won't. But that's not with your Father in heaven. It's not with your Father in heaven. He loved you so much that he sent his own son to the cross to pay for your sins that you will be with him in eternity. And don't ever forget it. You think that you've got some things in this, this life or you're, you're struggling and you're not you know, making ends meet. This life is but what the psalmist says, a hand breath. It's like grass that that's green for a day and then it dies and withers we're going to be with our dad in heaven for eternity eternity through the mercy of the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus for our sake right Matthew 24 verses 4 to 51 that we're not going through there we're only going to do a little bit because part of the plan of God uh, is coming up on the next page of my notes and you need to uh, look at this and Jesus answered and said take heed that no one's deceive you for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ this is the passage I gave you a little bit last week where in the church time the church period while Israel is outside the land it's almost like prophecy stops in 70 AD and it will not start again and be um, um, effective until these signs start to happen for many will come in my name in verse 5, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. But verse 6 is the kicker. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. This is the inter-advent age. This is the church age when things are going to happen. Spain against France, France against Britain, Spain against Britain. Who cares? Aztec against Incan. China against Japan. None of those things matter. They're tragic and they're, they're human history, but they're not in the plan of God. Everything that's in the plan of God revolves around his people and that land. We just happen to be grafted into the commonwealth of Israel and we become a new man, a new creation in Christ, and we join with Jews as Gentiles in the ecclesia, the church, the body of Christ. But he said, the end is not yet. And I'm going to show you a couple of things that happen. These last days, the last of the last days are the 20th century. And I said to you last week in verse 7, it was nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's a rabbinic idiom for world war. When did it start? World War One, World War Two. They were part A and part B of the same event. Same participants, same result. But they had a profound effect on the people of Israel. The First World War started the rise of Zionism, a desperate need in the Jewish people to, um, to come back to the land of Israel. And you know, the, the fascinating thing is the, the house that we live in, some of you have been up there, some of you know the history in the background, but the grandparents, the grandparents of the people who gave us that house, the grandparents walked a thousand miles from the Ukraine to Palestine because of the pogroms in Russia 
and the Ukraine against the Jewish people. And do you know what I mean? They would have stayed there had there not been any pogroms. But it took the pogroms to bring them back to what was called Palestine, the mandate of Palestine, what I call always Israel. And so it's these trials and their tribulations. Now Israel is getting ready for an influx of Jewish people all around the world. Why? Because anti-Semitism is on the massive rise again. People are being persecuted in what they call the promised land, the United States. Jews are being beaten up daily in Brooklyn and New York. Their, their synagogues are being um, uh, vandalized. There's, there's just such a rising. And you, know, you can understand it in certain religions. But in average people, it's satanic and it's rising up. But do you know what it's doing? It's forcing them back to the land. And in Ezekiel 36, God says to the people, I'm bringing you back. Why? Because every Jew that lives outside the land of Israel profanes my name. Read it. Every I said, oh, Sue's laughing. We were at dinner with our Jewish friends and I said to them, without thinking the consequences, I said, do you know that you living in Australia profanes Yahweh's name? And they were. Sometimes I'm like Peter. And, the, and, and, um, and they said, what do you mean? I said, it's in your scriptures. I said, Ezekiel 36 and 37, the return to the land, the valley of the dry bones, they're, te they're God telling you he wants you back home. And he says he wants you back home because you being outside the land profanes his name. And that, what do you mean by that? And I said, you should be living in Israel, not in Sydney and Melbourne. And it went quiet for a while. But do you know why? Because it says in Ezekiel 36 that the Gentiles who see the Jews living amongst them say these are the people of the Lord, but they're not living in his land. That's how they profane his name. And so what happened in, in, in Ezekiel 36 at the time that that, was, that that was being written, that was taken as a shame to the Jewish people because what that statement does is that your God's not big enough to keep you in the land. And so your God must be just like our God. Do you see what I mean? Our homemade, man-made God that we carve a piece of wood or we cast a piece of plaster of Paris and we call it God and we put it in the thing and put some fruit in front of it and that's our God. He's in charge of every single thing. Every week I go back to Psalm 2 just to make sure it's still there. <laughs> Chuck Missler always used to go back to Romans 8, but I'm going further back. I'm, I'm, I, you know, he holds his enemies in derision. But we had World War I, World War II, then we had what? May 14th, 1948. The Declaration of Statehood and the war of independence. Now look what they have put up with over these um, last um, decades. May 14th, declaration of statehood and the war of independence. Because of that, the war of reprisals in the 50s and 60s, that means that there were guerrillas, Fidayeen guerrillas from Syria, Egypt and Jordan constantly breaking into Israel and causing mayhem and violence and that. So there was... The war, it's called the Wars of the Reprisals. And in the Suez Crisis in 1956, the attack on Egypt by Britain, France and Israel to reopen the canal, the Six-Day War in 1967, you know, that's, that's personal to me because I can still remember as I was, how old was it? I was 12 and I was, I'd come home from our primary school, which was only just across the road, and mum was in the kitchen and I was eating my lunch and she was standing like this and the little Bakelite radio was up on a shelf and they were giving news of the six-day war 
um, breaking out in Israel and she said oh no and she was terrified that her two elder sons would be drafted and had to go and have to go and fight a war and I can still see the the um, anguish on her face and I'll never forget that in 1967 and then there was a war of attrition from 1967 to 1970 with Egypt Russia Jordan Syria and the PLO have any of you um, watched a video called Beyond All Odds? Have you ever watched it? We've got a, have we still got the copy? It's all of the miracles that God wrought for Israel in all of these wars. You have got no idea what God did for his people in all of these attacks on, um, on Israel in all these times. And I look, we'll try and get it here. Um, and anyone who really wants to see it, it's staggering. There is one thing that when Sue and I were watching it, this is years ago, um, it was absolutely amazing. I think it was in the 1967 war. And there were three Israeli soldiers near the top of a hill. And there was a hundred Jordanian soldiers who knew they were up there and they were coming along the valley floor and up the, the, the hill towards these three Jewish soldiers. A hundred to three. That's not good odds when you're fighting God. And you know what happened? They were halfway up the, the hillside and the Jewish soldiers were putting the final bullets into their, into their magazines getting ready for it. And there was a massive dead tree trunk below the Jews and above the Jordanians. And do you know what happened? This tree trunk started rolling down the hill towards the Jordanians. And do you know what was in the tree trunk? Wasp nests. <laughs> and so these swarms of wasps were angry and this, this tree trunk was rolling down, down the hillside. And so all of the hundred Jordanian soldiers ran for their lives as far as they could get. There are so many things like that in that DVD. And you go, gosh, what a miracle. You know, sometimes I think we forget that every day that God gives us breath, it's a miracle. We're not thankful to him. It's just, oh, just another day. No, he gives us life. And when we look at the amazing things in, um, in, in that vi video, there's another one that I'm going to tell you I shouldn't really because we're getting close to time. But there was a bunch of um, um, Jewish commandos up in the north of Israel, up in the Golan. And they knew that the Syrian tanks were about 500 metres away and they were creeping through the night um, trying to steal up to these tanks to put limpet mines on them. And they were going through a flat area and they, these five commandos were on their ground with their backpacks on their back until one of them went, Ay! And they realised that they had crawled into a minefield because one of the guys came across the little spring mechanism that was sticking up through the soil and he saw it. And it, they didn't know what to do. They couldn't, they couldn't crawl backwards. They were on their bellies. And they, what did they do? Do you know what happened? This is him. He caused a willy-willy to blow through that flat area and they said it was just an absolute dust storm. And when the dust storm took off down the hill, the moon came out. And all of the soldiers could see these shine, shiny round disks where they were. All of the mines had been exposed so they could creep between, wriggle between all of the mines that had been revealed by God in the moonlight. He's your father. You know, James says, we have not because we ask not. And if we don't have, we're asking amiss. Please, Lord, can I win lotto next Tuesday? 
No, that's not one of mine. I'm accusing you. But do you know what I mean? We, we think that miracles happen to other people. They don't. They happen to us. But sometimes we're so focused on the things that are happening in the day, we don't notice the miracles that God does for us. And we're praying here for people in this, in this congregation that need help in their, with their health. And, uh, you know, things come through. I've got a beloved brother here um, who was... Um, told in start of 2014 that he had 12 months to live because of kidney cancer and so it was a shock to him he went home sat down with his wife and they they talked it over and they came to a peace about it they had a peace about it whatever God's will is for my life I will accept it because he has blessed me abundantly in the time that he has given me on this earth 12 months and he was going to be dead. It's 2020 and he's still going strong. We have not because we ask not. And all of these wars, the, the Yom Kippur War in 73, the 82 Lebanon War, the first Intifada in 87 to 93 and the second Intifada 2000 to 2005. The 2006 Lebanon War, the Gaza Wars, 2008 to 2014. Sue loves the mention of the uh, 2014 Gaza War. Remember that Operation Protective Edge? And she was flying to Israel with this elderly Jewish lady sitting beside her in LL. And as they were coming into Ben Gurion Airport, the pilot came on and said, They've just announced a, a, a ceasefire in the Gaza war and the whole plane erupted in, in joy because Sue had to go and live in Beersheba which is a stone's throw from the border of Gaza do you see little miracles every time she goes somewhere peace breaks out you know what I mean <laughs> or war <laughs> listen we undersell him sometimes to our shame we undersell what God does for us what he can do for us and how much he loves us because we've been conditioned by human parents that if you give a little you get a little no with him you get everything you get eternity in heaven with him and next week's message I'm going to stop there because we can go and fellowship in um in the cafe and talk about these things but there's one war left for Israel and I fervently believe that this will bring about the tribulation because the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war does one does several things I was listening to Jan Markell and Amir talking about three or four weeks ago and they were just talking incidentally about Ezekiel 38 39. It wasn't the subject of their conversation. But they both expressed amazement at how alone Israel is in that war. There is no one there to help them. No one. And the armies coming to them are overwhelming. It's just like the three versus the, the, the hundred Jordanians. Do you know what I mean? God likes those um, um, odds. Do you know why? Because throughout Ezekiel 36, 37, 38 and 39, God constantly says through Ezekiel to the Jewish people, and the heathen will know that I am the Holy One of Israel. The heathen will know that I am the Holy One of Israel. And that's what happens in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Against all odds, he destroys their enemies. But they're alone. They can't even fight back. They can't even um, launch a counter-offensive. It fascinates me. I've been studying this war for 25 years, and it absolutely fascinates me. I'm going... But Lord, even, even now in the last five years with their military superiority, I'm saying, how can it be that Israel's on its own and can't fight back? Well, Ezekiel 38 verse 19 and 20 prove that and show that. But you know what I believe? And this is my thesis. 
And if you don't like it, that's fine. You're not my professor. You're not marking me. All right? He is. Israel is totally alone. I don't believe the church is here because it's totally alone. And if you don't think that thousands of born-again, fervent Christians would rush to Israel to even help out because the hordes on the northern border are ready to attack, do you don't think that, we, that, that people wouldn't do that? I'd even consider it. They're totally alone. Why? Because God says that the nations will know that I am the Holy One of Israel. Well, if the church is still here, is that not a slap against us? Because he is our Father. The church is his witness on the earth while it's on the earth. Do you understand that? We are God's witness to the whole earth at the moment. And God has got his people in every country, nation, and, and continent. For him to say those things about Israel in the 38-39 war, I'm saying, well, where's the church? It's my thesis. I'm happy with it. You can struggle with it. You can have your own decision because I don't tell you what to think. But when Jan and Amir both said, Israel is totally alone in that war, I'm thinking, so where are we? Where are we? And I'll tell you why there's, there's so many people attacking eschatology at the moment and they're saying that, well, the church goes through you know, part of the tribulation. Really? So if the church is in the first, at least the first half of the tribulation, why would God use 144,000 super Jewish evangelists in the first half of the tribulation? Why would he? Why wouldn't the church be doing that? It's not enough to see the church in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 in heaven seated around the throne of God. That's, that's plain. And the elders, that is the church, throw down their crowns and they worship, the, worship God on their knees. That's us before the tribulation even starts. I'm thinking, and I've put it to, to reputable people and they go, oh, I've never heard that before. But if Israel is totally alone, I'm posing you the question, where are we? Why would God call himself the Holy One of Israel? Why would he if the church is still here? Wouldn't there be passages that galvanize you and I to go and help them in some way? but no one stands up for them. So we'll go through Ezekiel 38 and 39, and I, I can just imagine all of your notes and counter-arguments. I love that. Do you know what? When, when people come up to me, like I, I, I had a bunch of documents given to me you know, a couple of months ago that were totally opposed to what Calvary Chapel believes, the pre-tribulational rapture, the pre-millennial we are conservative, we're dispensational, we think God's got a plan for Israel and a plan for the church. We believe all of those things. And all of these documents countered all of those arguments. I'm not offended by that. It just makes me go back to redo what I've learned over the last 30 years. And I know that what I believe is what the Word of God teaches. And all of the reputable men of God over the last 100 years that have commented on the scriptures and eschatology, we're all in general agreement. You'll never get 100%. If you can get 95, take it and run. But this is my thesis coming up for next week. So, Father, we just thank you for this time of fellowship. I thank you that you've just stilled the wind and the rain, for hopefully for our journey home, Father. And I ask a blessing on the people, Father, that have turned up not for any other reason that we are showing the, the community around us that we will stand up and worship God in fellowship, in Jesus' name, despite whatever comes against us, Father, and keep us 
in your arms. Keep us knowing that you're so close. Keep us in your arms, Father. And we pray for everyone who's associated with this um, congregation who are doing it tough mentally, physically, with their health, with jobs, with other pressures that are upon them, family pressures. Father, we just ask that you would reveal yourself to them in might and power through the Holy Spirit. And they would say like, like Cyrus, the God, the Lord God in Jerusalem, he is God. And we thank you in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.